Well, I would love it if you would open your Bibles with me uh, to Mark chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to finish up Mark chapter 7. We're heading towards Mark chapter 8, which we've talked about in several different um, messages here these last couple of weeks. Mark chapter 8 is a sort of uh, linchpin or hinge in the book of Mark. It's very much the, the, first, the first half of the book of Mark is leading up to it. And then from there, the tone shifts and different subject matter begins to arise as Jesus, after this confession by Peter that he is the Christ, will begin to tell his disciples that he's about to die. And they get ever closer to Jerusalem as they do so. And much like this first half where he's been showing that he is the Christ and they don't get it. So as he says, I am going to go to Jerusalem and the son of man, the son of God, the son of man, the Christ will die and they still don't get it. But before we get too far into looking ahead, we still have today to work through. Uh, as we uh, wrap up this first half of this book, we come near that peak that I was talking about. But today, I want to start us by looking back a little. Um, really looking back at last week at what Pastor Jay read with us uh, last week. The Trap of External Righteousness. That was the title of his message. And and that story uh, is the story of Jesus talking to these Pharisees and these scribes about uh, what is and isn't right. Talking about washing and all of these rules for these, right? These Pharisees, these staunch, strict religious leaders alongside uh, these, these kind of lawyer type people who read and interpret uh, the laws and also the, the tradition of the elders alongside them. Uh, And they, Jesus asked them a lot of these kinds of probing questions. What actually defiles a person? What actually defiles a person? What what is or isn't righteous? Is the no walking on the grass sign tantamount to scripture? I'm of course making a little bit of a joke that maybe wasn't all that funny. Um, But we talked about all these rules last week. And Jesus' reaction and challenge to the people who hold them in high regard Right. Washing for being out in public. Again, uh, as Pastor Jay uh, talked about, that wasn't about germs. It was about being around people who were unclean. Please see my air quotes. Uh, They will be using them a lot today. And it become a sign of how much these people, these Pharisees had had misunderstood, missed the point, warped the rules to the point where they saw very little value in people who weren't part of their little in-group, who weren't insiders, The outsiders were no longer welcome. People who didn't look like them, people who didn't follow the same strict rules that they did, people who didn't do the same things they did, they had drawn this line in between them. They had drawn a line between being an insider and being an outsider. But of course, that wasn't the point of any of the law or the mission that Jesus is on. And that much was said by Jesus in the first half of Mark chapter seven, as he he, again challenged these people, what actually defiles a person. But I also want us to cast our minds back even further, uh, further, uh, much further um, or much later back in the Bible, but not too long in terms of our, uh, our time. I want you to think back a month or a month and a half ago to Advent. Think about Christmas. This should be easy. You're in the doldrums of January now. Think back to when there was Christmas lights on everything. It smelled like cookies all the time and happy Christmas music was playing. I love Christmas. My tree is still up. I'm not apologizing. It's only partially because I love Christmas. The other part is that I'm very lazy. Um, (laughs) 
But again, think back to Christmas. During our Christmas series, our Advent series, we talked about Abraham, the promise of Abraham in the book of Genesis, how Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And from his son would be this nation, that nation would reach the world. And so the world would be blessed through him. Not just Israel. Not just Israel would be blessed through Abraham. That would be the nation that his family becomes, but also the Gentiles would be blessed. The world. That mountain peak moment continues to cast our gaze forward in time to where we come today and even further into the future. And that's at least one place that our text is taking us today. Jesus is the fulfillment of that blessing. And we really begin to see him declare this in many different ways in our stories for today. This latter part of chapter seven, going on into chapter eight, Mark is collecting several stories about Jesus out in the lands of the Gentiles, showing them and through them, us, that Jesus isn't just here for Israel. And as Mark ends the second story with Jesus does all things well, we know that he's come to bring all people to him fully and well. In one story today, we'll read of a woman who begs Jesus for help, even just a little bit of help. She begs for his blessing, but she's given it in full. A lesson to his disciples who continue to grapple with some of the things that they were raised in, some of the things that they have heard from these Pharisees for a very long time. And as we draw closer to this light bulb moment, when they finally see and understand who Jesus is, we we continue to have the needle poked in them a little bit. The second story takes us to yet another healing, but one done in such a manner that it will astonish all who see it happen and leave them in wonder at what they just saw and who they just saw do it. Not only will it be this awesome display of power, but it is of a quality that can only come from one place. This is some really great stuff ahead of us here. That's enough of a preamble though. I would love to get into these stories, but first let us pray and continue to ask for God's help and wisdom with their time in his word this morning. Won't you join me? Our father in heaven, we ask you, uh, God, that you just, you cause these stories to come to life. Uh, Lord, as we read them, I pray that we wouldn't just see more pages in the Bible, more words on the page, but Lord, that we see where your heart is going. Lord, we see your heart for people. We see your heart for the world. And Lord, I just pray that we would be able to grasp that, to take on to that, to hold on to it, even just for some time here this morning. I pray that it would uh, enter us, that your heart and your desire would grow in us, and that we would see uh, fruit from that as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So join me in reading Mark chapter 7, verses, uh, starting in verse 24, and we'll go through the end, verse 37. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If you look under your heading, you'll see one that I've, I've called, do not call unclean what I have called clean. We'll start there. Uh, of course, thinking about this, this first story with this Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and begs her daughter to be healed of this demon. If you're not a history person, if you're someone whose eyes glaze over in history class, then I apologize for what I am about to do, because I do think it is extremely valuable that we read these places and understand what the author was trying to convey to their audience. When we say this thing happened down in Olympia, you as people who live in this area have preconceived notions about Olympia and much the same thing is happening here. But I just know for some of you, I'm going to start saying these things and it'll be like I'm listing like planets in Star Wars or something and you'll suddenly be watching baseball at home and that's fine. It's okay. But I promise these are important. These two cities where this first story takes place, it's in this region between Tyre and Sidon, right? These are two coastal cities. They're to the north of Israel. They aren't too terribly far away from each other, which is why they get lumped into kind of one region. And if you go looking through your Old Testament, you will find mention of at least Tyre. Uh, Tyre used to be one of Israel's allies. If you look at the beginning of the book of Kings, uh, you will find the king of Tyre as one of Solomon's um, kind of closest allies. He helps a lot with things like building the temple where he provides uh, resources and work. Uh, they built like a fleet together and things like this. During this golden age of Israel, Tyre is a friend to Israel. And that's about where the good feelings end. Because in later years, Tyre becomes a place that the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, both condemn for its decadence, its wealth, its extravagance, right? These are coastal cities. They became very wealthy very quickly, and they used that wealth poorly. They, they used it on decadence, on uh, lust, on greed, uh, gluttony, all of these kinds of things, buying tons of food, all of that kind of thing. They were indeed very influential, very wealthy, and so these curses were called down on them. You can find those curses in Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 27, respectively. I trust if you're more interested in those, you can make your own way there, but I'm going to move on because as you fast forward to the time of Jesus, um, you've had these cities now that have had this kind of long storied and tense relationship with Israel. 
Now, some things have changed in them, so that it's not the same form of them. Most famously, Alexander the Great brutally conquered uh, Tyre after he built a land bridge out to the, the island city and conquered it. It's actually quite impressive, but again, that is for Alexander the Great. Uh, doing that. And after his fall, uh, it was left to, you know, whoever was in that vacuum. Now, eventually they were rebuilt. Uh, They were rebuilt specifically by Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great, the Herod that you often hear in Jesus's birth story uh, was the one who gave money to rebuild the temple, rebuild these cities and bring them into kind of his influence in Judea as both Tyre and Sidon. So once again, they were very wealthy cities once more. They had been rebuilt uh, and kind of brought into contact with these Judean uh, folks. So there was a, an element of Judaism that was in them. However, these two cities, again, very influential port towns, uh, had also become this kind of gateway for Roman and Greek influence into this area. You can still find, if you go to Tyre, you can still find Greek columns built in them in the marketplace and things like that. So it was largely a Gentile area, but with some levels of Hellenized or Greekified uh, Jewish culture as well. Very strange, very mixed up place and exactly the kind of place that the Pharisees would have wanted a full body scrub if they came back from spending any kind of time in it. Mark has brought us from that story into this very unclean place in the sense that the Jewish folks, Pharisees would have seen it. And it's here that this woman finds him, right? She finds him. He goes in there. He tries to hide. He says, I, I don't want attention or anything. She seeks him out in the hidden place, a Syrophoenician. That means she was from the area, right? That's two words. Syria, Phoenician It's put together. That means she was a a local. She's not like one of the ones from the feeding of the 5,000 who like went ahead of him out there, but she is a local a local Gentile who approaches Jesus and asks, can you heal my daughter? She has a demon. Not just asks this, but begs him to help my daughter. There's a conversation we need to have about Jesus's response. But before we get there, I just want to linger on the picture of this Gentile woman begging Jesus for help, right? We just heard the story We just heard some of the history between Tyre and Jerusalem, this area. They weren't friendly. They weren't. And they would have had, it was an entirely different culture, right? Greek culture, the rich people are more venerated, things like that. This woman who would maybe was wealthy, we don't know, but she was from this, this very wealthy area coming to this, this poor Jewish rabbi and saying, help. That is an incredible picture already. Like many people in Mark, it is the unexpected outsiders who seem to have a better grasp at what's going on than even the people who are following Jesus. She understands if I ask Jesus, if I beg Jesus, even a crumb that can help me. But like I said, the way that we get to this realization often raises some questions or objections Because when this woman comes to Jesus asking for help, his response, it looks very startling. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sure gives us a pause, right? Is the gentle and lowly savior that we know calling someone a dog? 
Is he refusing to help her because she's part of Israel first? She's not part of Israel. There's some evidence that this, this word is like something akin to like a puppy or a household dog. It's still not kind to call someone a dog. And I think it's important as we read the stories of Jesus to consider them in their whole. We could look very closely at this one and come to the conclusion, oh, Jesus was a jerk. Look, he called this woman a dog. But that's not the savior that I know. And that's not the savior that you find in many of the rest of the stories. What kind of Jesus, what kind of person is Jesus shown to be in all of the rest of scripture? Because he can be harsh in language at times. I'm not going to deny that. But usually it's the people who are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, refusing to believe what's clearly in front of them, or people who are directly defiling the temple. You know, that's one of the points where he goes out and he braids a whip. And yeah, that's a little harsh, but more deserved. But with people, especially people like this woman, with this woman, he is often much more gentle. He might be direct at times, but his words are kind. He spends a lot of times with people like this, uh, people who his society considered lesser women, children. He touched lepers for goodness sakes. That was a huge bridge. He cares for all of the least of these. I don't think he suddenly stopped caring for all the least of these in this story. I don't think he chose to be harsh with no reason. Especially since we can see that, that what, he, what he does is something he always intends to do. He always intended to give. The Gentiles would know him. That is always a promise that he has. That wasn't part of the question. If we take this in the whole, his plan, his character, Jesus' mannerisms, Is it not possible that there was perhaps a wink, perhaps an understanding between this Gentile woman and Jesus? Do we simply believe in the harshness or do we consider another option for this confrontation? Perhaps this was an opportunity. An opportunity for her to answer. Because Jesus does know. I think Jesus does know how she was going to answer. Like when the woman was healed just a few chapters ago, Mark chapter five, the woman who was bleeding and couldn't stop. And she reached out and touched Jesus's cloak and she was healed. He turns around and he asks who touched me. I think he knew. I think he knew, but he was giving her the opportunity to come forward, not just for her own benefit, but turning it into a teaching moment for all the people around him as well. I had this happen to me in college. I really kind of walked right into it. My Hebrew prof, he was talking about textual criticism for the Old Testament, which I, again, won't get into here. And he asked the question, how many versions of Blade Runner are there? Does anybody know how many versions of Blade Runner there are? There are seven versions of Blade Runner. And I know this because I'm a nerd. Um, All in all, like the changes are, they look minute. It's like a couple minutes, but really it does change the message and the ending of the movie quite a bit. Uh, Some of them are like director's cuts and things like that. There was an international version. There was a a version where the studio said, we want a happy ending, make one with a happy ending. So there are seven versions of Blade Runner. 
But clearly, I have an opinion on this because, as I mentioned, I'm a huge nerd. And so I pipe up in my Hebrew class when he asks this. He says, how many versions of Blade Runner are there? And I say, there's one. And it's the one in 2007 that Ridley Scott did when he had full control over everything. And my Hebrew prof went, aha, because I had walked right into a teachable moment. Because I think that kind of thing is what's happening here. I think there was some kind of twinkle of the eye, a wink, a coy smile, something between this woman and Jesus that said, I know where you're going. Say it. Say it. Because who was with him? His disciples were with him. And now we have the story to read. For the purposes, a teachable moment to show people the outsiders are welcome in. They're not like the dogs. She begs for a crumb. She begs for the scraps of the table. But her daughter is no less healed. It is not a crumb's worth of the demon that is thrown out. It is not half of the demon that is thrown out. When she comes home, her daughter the demon is gone and she's in bed. This woman, this unnamed Syrophoenician woman is joining the ranks of people like Rahab, people like Ruth, outsiders who see God and see him for who he is and respond in faith and receive the blessing just as it was promised to Abraham that from his line, there would be a blessing to the nations, to the world. That was always the plan. Remember Rahab, a prostitute in the city of Jericho. When Israel is entering into the promised land, they go through it. They send spies into the city and she hides them because she says, I am not going to stand in the way of the Lord. I know he is God. I have heard what he has done. Ruth, a Moabite, She marries into this family that was displaced from the promised land, left the promised land, but she stays with her mother-in-law when she returns, making the incredibly bold claim, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Two people, again, outsiders, not of the in crowd, people that Pharisees would wash their hands after meeting and each one realizes who God is, what he means. And they follow him. And so Mark is collecting this to show us that we're moving towards this reality of a great many people from all tribes, every tongue, every nation becoming one church following Jesus. No longer defined by where they're from, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. You probably noticed that this section of your notes, it's titled, Do Not Call Unclean What I Have Made Clean. There's a lot to look forward to after, uh, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven. Uh, we have all of the rest of the New Testament, of course, Revelation. But this particular title, I'm grabbing a phrase from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. In that story, the apostle Peter, he's traveling around near Caesarea and he has this vision of all kinds of animals being presented to him in a blanket, let down from heaven, a voice commanding him, come kill and eat. And Peter, still a good Jewish guy, says, by no means, I've never eaten anything clean. Are you kidding me? There's lizards and pigs in this blanket. I can't eat this. 
But this voice, God says, this phrase that I've put here, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And it's after that vision that Peter meets Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And his whole household, here's the gospel, his whole household is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down on all of them. What Peter did there in telling the gospel was an imitation of Jesus reaching out to the Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile. She begs for crumbs and Christ holds nothing back. It's from this story that Mark sends us on. He sends us on to the next story, ushering us from, from one place to another. We might be changing scenes, but Mark is not going far from his point just yet. He's now taking us to another Gentile place where he has this miraculous healing. Let's read that one again to, read a, uh, to get a refresher. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. In the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So like I said, this, this Mark is t- taking us from one Gentile place to another. Now this collection of 10 cities, right? The Decapolis, Deca, 10, Paulus means city. These 10 cities, again, very Greek in nature. They were essentially uh, like the Greek city states. You think like Athens or Sparta, um, those famous ones. But now these are smaller and of course still dominated by the Roman Empire, but still more of their, their self-governing entities. I say that to say this wasn't just like one collection of Gentiles. This was like 10 different communities that are coming to Jesus at these different times. Again, this kind of melting pot once more. And believe it or not, in these kinds of areas, these kind of Hellenized Greek areas, they had their own version of traveling miracle workers. Please see my air quotes again, because I don't think they were actually working miracles. I think they were hacks. I think they were charlatans, and we have a lot of evidence for that. We actually meet one such fellow in the book of Acts. Of course, Simon, he practices magic, and when he meets Peter, he's like, whoa, this magic is better than anything I've ever seen. How do you do it? And of course, Peter and co. are able to tell him of the gospel. And eventually, this sorcerer, Simon, comes around to it. But both that story and this story hold God's power in contrast with this worldly version kind of charlatan healers. Further proving to their audiences, their Greek audiences, that Jesus is in fact the son of God and has the power to back it up. Let's look at some of these differences because I do think uh, they are important. The first one is that these sorcerers, these charlatans, they would love big crowds to bring attention to themselves, right? That's how they made their living. That's how they made their bread and butter. They would be almost performative in their manners. They would bamboozle the crowd with, you know, I'm sure in these days it would be like special effects and lighting and fog machines and all of these kinds of things would be like, oh, boom, he's healed. Look, give me money. That'd be $25, please. 
So they drew big crowds so they could do these things publicly so that they could gain renown and, and make their living. But when Jesus heals this deaf man with the speech impediment, he takes him aside in private. And it's a much more intimate display. It is just him and Jesus. And he touches him, right? He puts his hands in his ears. He touches his tongue. A lot of people see that and are like, well, that's weird. Why is he sticking his fingers in his ears? But a lot of people think it was some kind of, of signal. I'm going to heal your ears. Okay, I'm going to make you speak. It's a much more intimate display. And it's not for everyone to see, but just this man and Jesus. The second thing, other charlatan healers, they used long and incomprehensible magic words and incantations. It was part of the display. It was part of the performance, part of the mystery. And in my opinion, part of the malarkey. Because a lot of it, it's like when people try to fluster you by using words that are way too big. They're not giving you a chance to think about it. They're just filling the silence with words. But when Jesus touches this man's ears and tongue, he speaks one word, one word, ephatha, be opened. That is an Aramaic, a common language that everyone could understand in that area. Third difference, he's actually healed. Charlatan healers, often not successful in any way whatsoever. And even if they were marginally successful, they would not be completely successful. Jesus, when he heals this man, not only can he hear again, but when his tongue is loosened, he can speak plainly. Even now, with all the modern medicine we have available to us, when we heal somebody's speech, they have to go through speech therapy as they strengthen, once again, vocal cords, all of these things. And it takes time. But immediately, this man can speak plainly. And he wastes no time telling people who did this. Because that brings us to the next one. This last difference. We shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' usual charge of silence. But to the crowd, that, that detail, that, that desire for these things to go, go on quietly was alien. If any of these charlatan healers were even remotely successful, that person would become their example, their spokesperson. Look, I healed this man. I can do the same thing for you. My rates are $30 an hour. But instead, Jesus, he charges them to be silent. But in spite of that, in spite of his insisting on silence, everyone knows. And so the people's cry becomes, he has done all things well. There is a quality to this miracle that is unknown to these people. They clearly mean this statement. He has done all things well. They clearly mean uh, for that healing. But in doing so, they tap into a rich, deep river of biblical theology. Because you know what this echoes. He has done all things well. Genesis 1. When God creates the world and it is very good. Very good. It colors all of the things that Jesus has done and will do. Jesus does not do things halfway. Like I said with the Syrophoenician woman, she asked for even just a crumb. But she, her daughter is no less healed than anyone else that Jesus cast a demon out of was. In John 10, Jesus speaking to Pharisees says, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it 
abundantly. Jesus does all things well. There is no person, Jew or Gentile, who receives any more or any less of the saving grace of Christ for any reason. The conditions are clear. So long as they ask and believe in the Lord and what he said, that person has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. So really, there's two big ideas that I want us to take away from our time in these stories today. They're both pretty big ideas. We'll be spending the rest of uh, our time this morning in the section titled Responding to God's Word. And I really, really want you to see the, the narrative thread that the Bible has drawn through it. There are many of these threads. There are many themes that run from page one to the last page in the Bible. But one of them is this idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, being a blessing to the whole world, God reaching the whole world, God desiring the whole world to know him. It's no accident that two of the four gospel writers record Jesus's last words as different variations of what we call the great commission, the command to go, to make disciples, to be his witnesses, right? We have Matthew 28, where he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, the historian Luke, Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and his last words to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 are, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God wants everyone of all kinds to know him. As we fast forward to the end of the age, there's a very clear picture painted in the book of Revelation. I've referenced it a few times today, but jumping around a lot. But one last thing I want to read is in Revelation 7, where the apostle John writes, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voices, salvation belongs to, the, to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The nations coming before the throne, drawing closer to God as their savior, as their king, as their friend, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, just come near God, our Savior, all kinds of people. He blesses the nation through his son, Jesus Christ. So my question for you, one of my questions for you today is, are you living in light of this commission, this command to make disciples, to be his witnesses to all kinds of people? Do you live your life in a way that is missional? I don't mean packing your bags and heading off to another place. I don't mean that. I don't mean working for a church or something like that. I don't mean any of that. Where you are right now, school, work, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, somewhere there are people around you who need to know Jesus. 
and thinking missionally, what we do with our time, what we do with our resources, it changes the way we think of people. How do we think of people? Do we see them as people that God is reaching out to? How are we thinking about these other people? There are so many ways to live in the light of being reached by a missional God. One who doesn't just stand far off and yell, but actually entered into our reality and said, I want to know you and I want you to know me. Like I said earlier, it's not a different kind of salvation for any single other person. Everyone is afforded the same opportunity I said earlier that Jesus doesn't do things halfway. If you look at the second bullet point, I wrote it again like this. Nothing that Jesus does is half-baked or an afterthought. Our God is a God who loves details and cares about the little things. Even the crumbs bear the fullness of his power and love with nothing held in reserve. Because even down to the smallest thing, our God is a God who loves details. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to seek divine guidance when you're thinking about what color of socks to put on. But it does mean that there is no concern that you cannot bring before our God. No part of your life that is outside of his interest. He cares about your fears, your hopes, and your dreams. He does hope those conform to his desires as well, but he cares about all of them. He spent a really long time with Moses when he was on top of the mountain there, just talking about, here's how long I want the tabernacle. I want this thing like it in it. It'll be like this. So don't think anything is outside of his reach. I'm guilty of this one as well. I think, know what? I don't need to bother God with this one. I can handle it. It's not a bother to God. Bring it to him. These two stories, they focus on Gentiles and outsiders from the perspective of of Jewish folks in these days. But really what they do is bring into sharp and clear view again and again who Jesus is. He is someone who cares for people from a single person's daughter to the entirety of the nations. He cares about all of them. I would hope that if this this is your first time hearing about this savior, uh, I want you to know that he cares deeply for you. And he wants to know you more. I'd love to talk with you about it if you're interested. Jesus' ways are excellent and he does all things well. Won't you stand with me and pray as we finish out our services for today? Oh Lord, our God, uh, we stand in an awesome wonder and we consider all the things that your hands have made. God, I just ask that we see this world through your eyes as we think ahead to to things. I hope we see uh, that we can borrow your eyes for just one moment, that we can see all these people in the way that you, you see them, to invite them in, to know you more. And Lord, I pray that we would know you more every single day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.